All right. In three, two, one. <laughs> gold do you have? How much is in a hoard? The fuck is a hoard? Why do you have one? I was a king once. Okay. I was. Then they made me a bird. Then Mother Church came along and turned us all into saints and trolls and fairies. General Mills did the rest. So what's the appeal? What's Wednesday selling at this god fest? You gotta get a ticket. War. Storm of Spoilers, you've stumbled upon an eight-episode miniseries dedicated to the Stars TV adaptation of American Gods. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Gail Wholesome. Each week, we, two book readers and amateur Neil Gaiman experts, will unpack the latest episode of American Gods. Despite the name of this podcast, we will not be spoiling anything this episode beyond Season 1, Episode 7, A Prayer for Mad Sweeney, directed by Adam Kane and written by Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Before we dive into the episode, we actually got a lot of emails this week. Thank you guys so much for making up for the fact that we had no emails last week in space. <laughs> uh, before we dive into the emails, though, I did want to—I wanted to address two two subjects that we got a lot of feedback on, both in email form and tweet form. Thank you so much. Well, actually, there's three three things. Um, one, the gin- ginger minge thing. Um, <laughs> we actually had a bona fide Irish person tell us that uh, ginger minge is totally something an Irish person would say. I mean, it still doesn't explain why Laura was saying it. The more popular response we got was the fact that there was a drag queen on RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> called Ginger Minch. We got a lot of comments about this. So maybe Laura is a stealth RuPaul's Drag Race fan, and that's where she picked up Ginger Minch. Um, the, I'm uncomfortable yeah. with her using that as an insult, though. <laughs> I, um, I preferred... I prefer unless unless Matt Sweeney unless uh, he bears a strong resemblance, which I somehow doubt. I I saw a photo of said Ginger Minge. Matt Sweeney does not look anything like <laughs> that lovely person. So no. Um, okay, uh, the Soma thing we are going to address in our email feedback section, and then the third thing is we got we got a tweet from someone who said that they were inspired by Gail to look up crow versus raven youtube videos and then i was inspired by that tweet to do the same thing and it was kind of extraordinary so then when the raven was cawing in this episode i was like that's not what a raven sounds like um what i learned from the from the two videos that i watched is that there are a number of indicators really that that Mm -hmm. that distinguish a raven from from a crow but uh i learned I, you might have said this on the episode last week, but I learned that the the term for the sound that a raven makes is a rock. So, like, <laughs> the narrator was like, the narrator was like, the crow rocks to caw, and the raven just rocks. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, if I misinterpreted that... Please do uh, email us and let cute, us know. Cute Corvid humor. <laughs> you can email me at stormspoilers <laughs> at gmail.com or you can tweet at Gail or myself. 
at Clockwork Rose, at Joe Wrote This. We also got a lovely tweet this evening from someone who went to Wisconsin to the House of the Rock, <laughs> uh, speaking of rocking things. So that's something we're going to talk about before this episode's over. But uh, that was fun. I, I always enjoy people uh, going places and taking photos and sending them to me. So yeah, thank you for that. that. Is super cool, too, <laughs> that uh, someone, um, someone's doing the real road trip. I know, exactly. All right. So, Gil Folsom. Mm-hmm. What emails do we have in store for ourselves? Let's see. Let's go to the mailbox. <laughs> um, Jeremiah sent an email that we wanted to uh, talk about a little bit. And he says, Hi, Joanne and Gail. As heavy-handed as it might have been, I liked Vulcan's story a lot in seeing how an old god can survive and thrive by taking the new god's deal to franchise and rebrand. What I was never totally clear about in the show or the book was exactly was exactly constant. Oh, what exactly constituted faith or belief since it's different for every God we've seen Bilquis getting it from the people she sleeps with and Vulcan explaining how every bullet fired is a belief, but where's the faith coming from for the other old gods like Wednesday, Anansi or Chernabog to survive? No one is making sacrifices to these gods anymore. So what keeps them around? I imagine that people just have an idea who Odin or Thoth is not enough to keep them powered. No, just having an idea who I'm sorry, I'm doing this really poorly. (laughs) People just having an idea who Odin or Thoth is, is not enough to keep them powered. Also to answer your question, if I remember correctly, Wednesday tells shadow that Soma is distilled prayer that is bottled and drank by the gods, which is why I think Vulcan doesn't let shadow drink any. We had a lot of people email us about the Soma thing, which is laid out very explicitly in the book in the Easter section, which Mm. we will get to in next week's episode. Um, I I think that's a good point. You know, I think I think we are meant to see like certain gods in extreme decline. Like Bilquist has figured mm-hmm. out how to get some measure of of worship out of people. Um but like the reason Chernobog is in such decline is that like he can only eke it out by I guess murdering cows. Like it's not the same. Well, and I guess while it's, he hasn't like quite franchised that's it's a thing that Americans, in a, I, this is my take on it, in a way sort of worship is, um, you know, the consumption of, sorry to be so dramatic, the consumption of death. Because we, like Americans as a culture, we do consume a great deal of meat and we, we, we don't need to. Actually, we waste quite a lot of the animal um, in terms of what we ourselves eat it's not good capitalism to waste very much of the animal. So it does get used. But um, I, I would say maybe Chernabog sort of squeaks by on a sort of general acceptance of feeling of destruction or death that American culture espouses vaguely, you know, in things like, you know, gun culture or, you know, um, eating way too many animals, um, you know, wasting resources, but it's not specific worship. It's not, it's not with his name on it. Right. Or the Zariah sisters like squeeze a little out of like doing some fortune telling, which is like, yeah, a, sort of like superstition, which is yeah, not worship, which is like a sad little shadow of what they used to get. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I, I agree that it was, it's smart to want to explore how an old God, could with the help of the new gods adapt um 
you know, their way of, of getting power from worship to a, a new American culture. Um, but I, you know, I think Gail and I agreed that there were things that worked and things that didn't work in the specific ways they did that with Vulcan for us. So, yep. uh, what else do we have in the old mailbag? Well, let's see. Um, we got this really great email from Jonathan. Jonathan, we really loved your email. We could not possibly read all of it on the air, though. So we're focusing on... We just don't have time. We're focusing on one paragraph, which I I particularly liked, which has about 20 questions in it. Um, and it begins, Oh, also, also... <laughs> I assume Mexican Jesus resurrected and is still around since Odin knows him and his story. Or is it another one? If a God dies, but then more people come and believe in that same God, does he reappear? Or can there be multiples of the same different Mexican immigrants from different regions, bringing multiple Mexican Jesuses, or do they just merge or the one takes over since no culture is a monolith. How personal a Jesus do you get? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how many slices <laughs> i wouldn't mind a crisis on infinite jesus sort of thing or some sort of voltron jesus where all the jesus combine to form a giant fighting jesus maybe that's more something for dave he might like american gods if that happened <laughs> <laughs> let's all agree to lie to dave gonzalez and tell him that there is a crisis on infinite jesus slash voltron jesus and oh and my god dave watching Oh my God, Dave, you got to watch this episode. There was <laughs> Jesus's where different arms and legs. Jesus is for days. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is too long. Sorry. Anyway, I know you're busy with podcast aplenty and Gail is busy doing whatever she does, which is work. Probably real work. <laughs> love the podcast. Love your commentary. Keep fighting the good fight. Even when it seems temporary and meaningless. That's when we need it the most. Oh, that was this in that really was in response was. to my existential rant on Twitter. I suspect. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, Gail definitely does do real work. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> definitely, definitely does. Um, I won't. I've seen the finale, which is next week. I won't spoil it for you, but I, I think I want to reserve my my uh, musings on Jesus and how this show represents Jesus for next week. Uh, and all I'll say is that the title of that episode is come to Jesus. So I think we're going to have some further clarifications of the way that Jesus works in this universe. Gail, since you have not seen the finale, do you care to speculate or, um, anything? I'm, I, um, I mean, based on just what we've discussed, I, I my speculation is that um you know due to the sort of you know special case that Jesus is in American culture or I don't know even maybe even world war culture um crossing like quite a lot of cultural boundaries I think uh I think it entirely likely that uh the Jesus is just sort of resurrect based on continued belief but this is a place where you know if i think if we look too closely at the rules of this world like if we start looking (laughs) like like a tabletop game we're gonna start that's fair we're just gonna end up eating our own tails so we might as well uh 
That's so, true. I feel yeah. like we can continue to complain about how inconsistent... And, like, I was really gratified to see a lot of tweets about pe- other people annoyed by how inconsistent Shadow's reactions are yeah. to various things. <laughs> that was that was gratifying to me. Um, <laughs> so I feel like we can, we can continue to complain about the inconsistencies of Shadow, who does not appear in this episode. Um... But you're right. Probably should not like go granular on on the <laughs> god rules of of the universe here. Um, yeah, Jesus is. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for next week. Uh, I really am. I'm really actually really excited to talk to everyone about Jesus next week. <laughs> this is not something you, Gail, who have been my friend. I've never for... heard Joanna say that. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, Jesus related. Um, we have a little bit more mail. Is there anything yeah. else uh, we wanted to go through in the mailbox? This one, I think, um, this is sort of more for you, Joanna. Um, this is coming from Cameron, who says, um, I, th- I think you would both, excuse me, I think you both would be really interested in a recent episode of the Postmortem podcast hosted by Mick Garris, in which he interviews Brian Fuller. The back half of the episode goes into very specific details about the production of American Gods first season, and Brian Fuller talks at length about the frustrations he encountered tackling such a huge show. He's very transparent about the fact that he and Michael Green are still trying to nail down the tone and that a lot of aspects of the production for season one did not go as planned. I personally believe Brian Fuller is a genius, and it has been a pleasure for me to watch him adapt one of my favorite books in such a bold, abstract, and beautiful way. I also believe he's a gifted storyteller who is still figuring out how to make this show, and that we will see a much more focused second season. And uh, I certainly hope so. And, and I think this is also in, in earlier. Uh, he he says that the show is finding its footing, Buffy style, and we have. We have many times referenced Buffy as the gold standard for first first season stumbles. Yeah, exactly. That's the best possible scenario for first season stumbles, <laughs> I think. Uh, or the leftovers. That, that was also, I think, a first season stumble. But um, yeah, I did want to include that email from Cameron just because if anyone else is interested in listening to that postmortem podcast, which I have not listened to yet, but um, it's always it's always nice to hear from the the creators themselves rather than us speculating about what might have gone wrong for them to sort of and it, and it's it's kind of rare to hear creators be very forthright about like yep this did not go how i wanted <laughs> and i think i can do it better and um you know gail and i are about to dive into uh episode 7 here but I, I think between episode five, um, the Laura episode, that was episode five, right? Or four? Episode four? Anyway, the Laura episode and then <laughs> th- this kind of the Laura episode part two, I really do feel confident um, that season two of American Gods can be great, even if it just means like that Emily Browning is the new star of, yeah. of the series, uh, you know, with, with apologies to Ricky Whittle. So, um so yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna break down the episode beat by beat. Um, I know Gail enjoyed it a good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I did as well. This is based on um, a coming to America vignette that's from the book. It's not Mad Sweeney. Mad Sweeney is not sort of the figure in the book in this coming to America vignette. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they changed the name of the character from Essie. Tregowan to Essie McGowan, which I have yep. no idea why they would do that, but that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, before we get into like sort of beat by beat, I want to say broadly that I rewatched this episode sort of with 
Gail's glowing praise of it, like ringing in my ears. I watched it a second time. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like what did Gail love about this episode? And like, what do I love about this episode? And I think it has to do with the fact that we get um, Mr. Ibis's uh, narration throughout, uh, which makes it so much more like reading mm-hmm. a Neil Gaiman story. Cause you get the beautiful narrative bits, um, which you know, it just reminded me that when it comes to Neil Gaiman, it's not just the story he, stories he tells, but how he tells them in the beautiful mm-hmm. language. And, um, you know, the the actor who plays Ibis, who I am looking up right now, and maybe I don't have it in front of me, but um, I think he almost. I've heard. I've heard. Um, I've heard Neil Gaiman give a lot of readings, as as has Gail, and um, mm-hmm. I think he was almost um, aping. style that Neil Gaiman uses. Neil Gaiman's like not the most natural reader, but he's like, there's just something about the way that he weaves. He's got an enthusiasm, though, that's very charming when he reads his own stories or or anyone else's. He clearly loves to be lost in a story. And it uh, comes through in his voice. Yeah. So it's it's Damora Barnes who's the actress who played Mr. Ibis. Mm. And um, yeah, and, and Whenever he tells a story, even if it's like when he's reading from The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is mm-hmm. a fairy tale, but it's a book for grown-ups, you know, he always tells a, a story like he's telling it like almost around a campfire, like to children, you know, like, mm-hmm. like Essie, mm-hmm. you know, McGowan would in this episode, like, you know, like, let me weave the spell of this narrative and let me lilt in a little and, and, mm-hmm. and there's a little moral to what I'm going to tell you here and pay close attention. And Bang I just, on the table to surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> just, I just, I really love how he does it. And I think this episode more than, you know, I, you know, I love the lore episode, but I think we both <clears throat> agreed that it was a huge departure from the book. Whereas mm-hmm. this feels like even more so than the very, very faithful pilot, the most Mm -hmm. faithful to what it's like to actually read a story written by Neil Gaiman. What do you you think? I I agree with that. And the other thing that, um, and and I would say this, this falls in line with the assessment that this is the most Gaiman episode that we've seen so far is that there was, um, there was a, <clears throat> sorry, a sense of sentimentality um, in unlikely places that I I really enjoyed. Um, you know, there it w- and we'll go into we'll go into the specifics of the episode, but um, it made me think of the poem uh, instructions that Neil Gaiman wrote, and I used to have a big copy of instructions on my classroom wall when I was a teacher. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a great poem because it's full of, and it's, it's a book too, actually. It was a really beautifully illustrated book as well, but it's a set of instructions for sort of navigating fairy tales or mythologies, which have their own sets of odd rules. And that's really well demonstrated especially with Irish fairy tales, because fairies are very unpredictable. You know, and Matt Sweeney says at one point in the episode, we're like the wind, we blow both ways. It's very true. And they can be, you know, like in, in, in folklore, they can be very vindictive. Mm -hmm. They can be, they can run very contrary to human assumptions about how to be grateful. For example, I mean, things like if you borrow something from a fairy, 
you don't repay it more than what you took. That's rude. You know, like, and then, you know, you'll have bad luck or, yeah. So it's sort of, you have to learn, you have to learn the rules. But once you know them, there, there is a certain predictability. And then there, there is a, there is a fondness. There is a sentimentality in knowing the ways of something that is very um, unpredictable and, and can be very vindictive too. And, and so this episode for me, I just was, I was sort of beside myself because I just thought it was this, it was a, there was so much life in it. There was so much happiness and pain and luck and circumstance and in the end, it was about a relationship that hadn't really been a relationship, I thought. So this, I think that's beautifully put. Um, I'm going to get this last thing out of the way before we go beat by beat, which is to say that my only major problem with the episode is the no good, very bad, awful <laughs> wig that they put on Emily Browning, which looked like a Raggedy Ann doll wig. Like, and I don't understand why they did that to her. I can under, I get why they made her like the freckling, the freckling makeup effect that they did on her skin was beautiful and perfect. And like, if you want to lean into stereotypes, I'm okay with that. Like, if you want to make her a redheaded freckled Irish lass, like fine. But like, it was the waves. It was the crunchy waves that made it like really, really very bad. So Yeah. yeah. Like what? And they were like, they were definitely very unnatural curls. But she had them like throughout the entire episode. Like, like you couldn't, she was you couldn't get her a yeah a frowsier <laughs> curled wig. No, nobody has <laughs> a little yeah. frizz, please. Yeah, Do you, like, couldn't the, you afford two wigs? I think they like bedewed <laughs> her wig in the transportation scenes. They like sprinkled some droplets on it and then probably patted it dry because it's probably quite expensive. And like the only thing I can think of is that um, Fianola Flanagan, who played both her gran and then the older version of Essie, who's an incredible Irish actress. Um, her hair looked great in that style. <laughs> and I think yeah. they almost fell prey to that like thing. I mean, her hair is gray or whatever wig she was wearing or whatever, but like they almost fell prey to that thing that they do in movies that I hate, which is like in order to show you, prove to you that it's the same actress, she has mm-hmm. to have the same hairstyle through every like actress or same character that she has to have the same hairstyle. The worst example of this is the movie Atonement where Sir Ronan <laughs> And Rommel Gary and Vanessa Redgrave all have the same awful bob. Well, it looks fine on Saoirse Ronan because she's a child. But, like, you're telling me that character, Bryony, is not going to, like, grow out her childhood at bob some at some point. point? Is that part of the atonement? I mean, come on. <laughs> is your haircut the atonement, Bryony? Okay. All right. I'm sorry. We were off track. Okay. Let me get back to this other literary adaptation. Um, we open... Uh, with Ibis and Jackal and someone tweeted at us saying like this is the first time an episode pronounced those names correctly so forgive me if I did not pronounce them correctly just now um, in in recounting them but uh, Jackal is hard at work on a corpse and uh, Ibis pours some Irish red ale and then Jackal says you have a story to tell I can see it in your fingers and Ibis looks at a map of New England and opens his books and starts to write um and then we get his narration. And listen, 
I'm not here <laughs> trying to make like non-gay characters gay. I just I actually don't care at all if Ibis and Jekyll are actually gay. But what they are in is a very charming domestic partnership yep. of like, honey, I can see that you need to write. Go do your thing. I will occasionally bring you <laughs> sustenance, but I'm going to leave you alone to write because it's a thing you need to do. Like, I, yeah. I was just very charmed by the verbal and nonverbal touches in their relationship throughout this episode. Um, and I, honestly, I think, I think, and the, again, I'm going to talk like, you know, broad cultural strokes here, but I do think that one of the reason it's, it's so charming. Um, but there's, there's sort of a, I don't know. We have, we have a bit of a hang up about it is because you don't, you don't see two men having an unspoken and loving relationship unless they're gay. And so, you know, it becomes this sort of like difficult thing to talk about, but you know, one way or the other, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think twice about it if it was two women, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, I'm not trying to make, you know, women gay, but it, it, I just, I balk a little bit at it because it doesn't matter. And it's, you know, like men deserve to have understandings with each other and be supportive of each other and be roommates you know, and, and be gay or not gay. It just, I was really charmed by their whole relationship. They're also gods. They're super old. I have no idea what's going on with them. Um, they may have like had a gay phase and, and then just been like, we're going to see other people. Cause I can't stand living with you like this forever. And now they're just friends. I don't know. Oh yeah, but Mono- I really monogamy when you're an immortal. Ugh, that's <laughs> rough. rough. That's rough. rough. We all saw. We all saw only lovers left alive. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming, but anyway, uh, yeah, I I agree with you 100. percent I want to be in that house with them, right? And drinking Irish I, red ale. I just and I just want to like sit quietly, yes, in a corner of the embalming room. Yeah. You know, because it also looks like a pretty friendly and relaxing place. Neil Gaiman once said about the character Death in um, in the Sandman comics, because uh, Death is, you know, quite a favorite of his. He portrayed her very lovingly, mm-hmm. and she was one of the warmest and brightest characters in, in that whole series. But he... He was talking about uh, different cultural depictions of death, and and he said, you know, something to the effect of, uh, I, I think it was some culture uh, saying that when you saw death, uh, you looked into her eyes and you fell so deeply in love that your soul left your body. And he he said something like, I I like that image of death, and that's how I tried to create her as somebody you know, who I would like to meet. And I sort of feel that way about these, these undertakers. They're dealing with dead bodies and and we have a natural aversion to that, but they make it a natural and friendly and warm and they take such care. I just love these characters so much. I love their relationship. I love their home. I love how tidy they are. (laughs) I just like, I love the care they take of each other. It's great. They're great. They're possibly my favorite gods. Yeah. And um, Ivis being like sort of wistful and sad that you don't get lovers quarrels uh, <laughs> resulting in bodies on their tables anymore. Anyway. Um, so my, you know, something that, something that Gail asked me after she watched the episode, because it's something that we got uh, caught out in earlier in um, the season. And she was like, was that music in the episode? The <laughs> final track or did we have a weird temp track and um as far as i can tell 
you know, we had the final version, which is a bunch of doo-wop music, which is anachronistic to the story that they're telling, but I actually really loved it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as I was watching it a second time, I'm like, well, maybe this is meant to be sort of like what Ibis is listening to, even though the first song that he's playing on on the record player isn't like very like 50s doo-wop, it's like um, more 40s. But I was like, maybe it's supposed to be like, this is what Ibis is listening to while he tells this story. And that's where we're getting like, run around Sue and stuff like that in this episode. But, um, Someone of our mutual Twitter acquaintance, who Joanna is closer to than me, tweeted out, like, not that long ago, and it was unrelated, um, that Run Around Sue is, like, the catchiest slut-shaming song in the world. (laughs) That's all I think of every time I hear it now. True. True. so lovely doo-wop plays uh, over scenes of, of transportation. And it was like, the first song is like doo-wop mixed with like um, the pan flute of the Irish mm. Isles, right? So it plays over scenes of transportation, indentured servitude. Um, we see Ibis write out the new world. Um, and then he talks about, yeah, the American colonies being uh, a dumping ground for, for transported mm-hmm. uh, convicts. And then we get uh, an early shot of what will close out the episode, which is Mad Sweeney coming for Essie um, as she's dying. But that's just a, a hint of what's to come. Uh, I think it's so funny that Americans in like in our like school books sort of gloss over the fact that we were penal colonies because we're so happy to remember it about Australia. <laughs> it's like all we want to talk about when it comes to Australia. They're criminals. Good God. Um yeah, speaking of which, uh, Emily Browning, uh, someone tweeted at me that they were surprised, uh, like, <laughs> did Emily Browning get a different dialect coach than Pablo Schreiber? Why is her Irish accent so good? Uh, it, it's helpful that she's Australian, so, like, she's kind of halfway there. I don't know if Australia is halfway there to Irish, but, um, you know, <laughs> she's not American, so uh, that that is, that is a help, I guess. Okay, so anyway... <laughs> Still at the beginning of the episode. Um, we see a redheaded little girl on whom uh, those red curls look more natural. Um, learning about leprechauns from her grand, played by, as I said, Fionola Flanagan, who is in Waking Dead Divine and really creepy in the others and is just generally a wonderful actress. And I was like, yes, they got an ace Irish actress for this episode. Um, she's waiting for her pa's ship. The, they point out a fairy mound. Uh, oh, you know, I copy-pasted this word, but I think spell check got the better of me. But <laughs> it's a Gaelic word for the fairy folk. Athena um, she. Yeah, thank you. The <laughs> spell check turned into something else entirely. It's not, well, that's because it's spelled, uh, <laughs> spelled Dayawain Siddu, but it's not <laughs> because, uh, you know, Roman letters and Gaelic. Yeah, but it's Athena uh, she. Actually, I think she says, actually, I think she says, uh, a she, and it is also an Irish term for supernatural race and Irish mythology. I'm just true. This. A-O-S-S-I apostrophe. So, huh. 
Um, Aishi. Yeah, and the the down Sith. It's all. It's all. Welcome to the yeah. episode where we murder Gaelic. You're welcome. Anyway, that's, <laughs> if you're like, what's that word she said? Irish people, please <laughs> crawl out of the woodwork and yell at us. Yeah, I was attempted <laughs> to make you do this entire episode in your terrible Irish accent because people who listen to Storm of Spoilers know that I love to do terrible accents. What they don't know is that like you are the person that I usually do terrible accents with. So. Okay, tell you what. Everybody, if you stick around, we'll do, we'll do. I don't know, like a couple sentences in yeah, our terrible, end. terrible Irish accent yeah, at the yeah. very end. We'll, stay for the end. We'll save that torture for the end. Okay. <laughs> so Essie learns a very valuable lesson here from her gran, which is that you leave a blessing for the fairy folk. Um, her gran also talks about the morrow, which are um, like like selkies. They're mermaids with seal skins, but they're not quite selkies. Um, but that's another fun word that I got to look up. And that's another reason why this episode feels very gamey to me, because they just drop words in there and like don't really take the time. Like if you want to Google that, you can go ahead and Google that. But I'm not going to sit here and explain it to you necessarily. So it makes then- it magical that way too to just like like oh yeah you know the selkies it's just part of life to have these magical but had you heard of the, the marrows i had never I, heard of marrows no i had not i'm very i'm familiar with selkies yeah we are but... fluent in in selkies we've we have, <laughs> we have experienced the secrets of reminish um, <laughs> and other fine films and um, others but yeah so then we cut to Essie, who is now played by Emily Browning in a terrible wig uh, <clears throat> in her employer's kitchen, telling fairy tales to uh, the children of the house. Um, she tells a story about how she got lost in the mist and the fog. The young master of the house is making eyes at her. Um, Essie, oh, Essie notices that he's making eyes at her. So she and uh, so she brings an offering to the fairy fairy mound. Bread wrapped in her hair, which is gross, and a coin. Um, the hair his bread, gross. his bread, leftover from his plate. His bread wrapped in her. Okay, that makes more sense. His bread <laughs> wrapped in her hair with a coin. Um, and I, I really liked this narration here, where he talked about like you know, women being smart in a woman is not that rare. Everyone is beautiful at seventeen, but Essie <laughs> possessed a rare token of ambition. And um, I think this kind of goes back to. The show's treatment of Laura in her standalone episode of like Laura had ambitions, which is you know not something that like women are often allowed to have. I don't want to. I don't want to paint with that broad of a brush, but you know, like uh, I think we remarked it's desirable. At the time, I think I think. We, I think we remarked at the time that Laura wanting more than a guy yeah. who loved her in a house that they owned. Um, and and it, it was in the shape of kids is uh, <laughs> felt felt different, you know. So, um, also they mention that Essie had never had a syllabub, which uh, mm-hmm. is an English sweet frothy drink, which is popular from the 16th to 19th mm-hmm. centuries. A dessert based on it, which is still eaten. The drink was made of milk or cream, curdled by the addition of wine cider or other acid, and often sweetened flavored. The dessert is typically made of whipped cream, wine, or sherry, sugar, and lemon juice. That sounds disgusting, and also sounds like something that Gail will make me eat at some point. So I was just gonna say. <laughs> It's definitely something it's, you were like. It's lovely. A lemon syllabub? Are you kidding me? <laughs> With a splash of sherry. <laughs> and ladyfingers? It's almost a trifle. <laughs> yeah, almost a trifle. Um, 
Uh, more Dua plays. Uh, I, I promise I'm going to check in with you. I just want to like knock some of this out as Essie and the young master get it on in the kitchen. Essie says she's sure she'll be forgotten when he goes away to school. He gives her a cherished family heirloom. His name is Bartholomew, which is just the perfect young master that has huh. his name. Uh, she gets caught with the trinket. Bartholomew betrays her. She's sent to transportation. She leaves a blessing for the leprechauns on the ship. Is plucked from the breach by the captain. Uh... The the narration says they were as butterflies in courting, and I'm gonna pause here and and ask you <laughs> ask your thoughts on this opening introduction to Essie McGowan. Um, it was, I mean, just knowing what happens to Essie in the end, it was. I thought Emily Browning did just such a lovely job of portraying someone playing sort of an innocent con like she I thought you know I I felt like the way that she played it she really did have feelings for this young man she enlisted the help of the leprechauns it seemed like such a good idea he's so well set up she likes him so much he likes her back but it was also like there was also a an ambitious quality about what she did. It was, it was, it was more, I think, than just, you know, that she liked him very much. There was, I got the impression that there was a bit of financial security, like there's a bit of calculation involved. And so it was just like such a rookie mistake (laughs) to think that like this guy was ever going to be able to marry her. But what was sort of shocking about the actual result was that this kid had to know that she for theft she could get hung he sentenced her to death like how afraid is this kid of his mom anyway um uh that that crappy kid aside i'm gonna make a blanket statement here apologies to all barts who might be listening <laughs> all bar fall amuse are the worst and worthless so okay um at least in fiction <laughs> Except for one Bartholomew, Bartholomew. Bartholomew Simpson. Okay. Um, all right. Yes. So, so yeah, just um, there was, there was, yes, a token of ambition, but there was a great innocence about her, mm-hmm. which pretty quickly went out the window because, and, and then there's that wonderful scene um, after the, uh, the captain, um, you know, they're they're having this lovely, this pleasant time for the lovers who were as butterflies and corking. Um, and they're, you know, feeding each other grapes, Tom Jones style, like everything's great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just sort of looked like, oh, look, Essie's had such a lucky break. And this is what's going to happen now. She'll be, she gets to go home, sort of, to a new place. She's going to be set up so nicely and taken care of. And then the first thing she does, just like the minute he's out of sight, takes her apron off, uh, takes him for everything he's got, and leaves. Just like, uh, nope, means to an end. And then there's a wonderful piece of narration where he says something to the effect of the world had branded her a thief. Uh-huh. And so that is exactly what she was going to do. And I, that was the moment where it was like she had the audience fooled too. Because it just looked like this dreadful thing had happened to this innocent girl, and now she was gonna she was gonna make right. She was deal, doing the best she could in trying circumstances. 
except no. She was doing the best she could in trying circumstances, and now she was going to do so much better for herself. <laughs> because yeah, she's just just the best you could do in trying circumstances. Why not do the best you could do for yourself? Period. Also, ever. why why ever trust a, like a guy again to oh, God. be your protector? Take care of you, please. Um, yeah, no. To go back to your earlier point about like how she had genuine feelings for the young master Bartholomew, I, I think there's like a, a line when they're having sex. It's like it wasn't the first time for either of them, but it was like the first <clears> time <throat> they felt this way. So it was almost like yeah. the first time sex with like a freeze zone of love of something and uh yeah and she was betrayed and and then she's like cool that's not gonna happen to me again (laughs) i want it so yeah so that's that's the scene where runaround sue kicks in as uh se fleeces the captain and then we cut uh back uh to modern times to the taxi and to salim and mad sweeney and laura and the flies all making their way across america Oh my god, so many flies all the time now. I've I was always enjoying the flies because they were a reminder that no matter what how lovely Emily Browning looks with her, you know, airbrushing, um, she's dead. Right. But um the flies are like a nuisance now. Like they're they're like they've gone from being a reminder to like a time bomb. Like we gotta do some we gotta do something about Laura. <laughs> We need to talk about Laura. Um, they they stop at this enormous statue of a white buffalo, and the narration talks about how um, this white buffalo was born in 2008, and like the Lakota worshipped it. And this is a thing that actually happened. I found a story that happened. I think it was like 2012, as recently as 2012, that like when a white buffalo is born, even if the farmer who doesn't like who is responsible for the white buffalo does not like believe in the practices of Lakota, like the Lakota will come gather and like bless <laughs> this, this creature. And, um, yeah, there, so yeah, there's a story. It took place in, um, Connecticut. Yeah. And so some, some like farmer, Peter Fay, like on the Mohawk bison ranch in, in Goshen, Connecticut is not a native and was only vaguely familiar with the story of the white buffalo calf woman. He just sort of like let the Lakota come and like do the blessing thing. And he's like, okay. Um, so it's a, it's a cool example, something I wasn't aware of, of like, you know, uh, a very religious sort of happening. Um, mm-hmm. Because I guess the white buffalo is quite rare. rare. That, sh- that makes sense to me. Um, that that still is is going on in these here United States. So that's fun. Uh, Salim is praying. Mad Sweeney is relieving himself and talking to ravens <laughs> that call like crows. Um, <laughs> Mad Sweeney reveals to um, Laura that the destination is the House on the Rock in Wisconsin. So she tells Salim to that he's free, that he can go get his man. And uh, she and Matt Sweetie can carry on without him. We, so we've seen Matt Sweetie punch very hard before, but like he kicks fully kicks through a picnic bench. So like he yeah. has he has somewhat super strength, and then Laura has like super duper strength. Is that accurate? Is that what we would I would say, say so because I'm really, he he was after all picked to specifically to start a fight with Shadow and presumably right. not kill him with a single punch. But, like, he's obviously a brawler. That's something that he's quite good at. So, yeah, and, and he could certainly take a punch. I would say he has more than average, perhaps not super, <laughs> but <laughs> above average strength. All right. Um, 
So Laura wants to steal an ice cream truck. Um, I don't know if her like thinking in stealing the ice cream truck is this will be nice and cool for my decaying body, but that is definitely a nice. That was the first thing that I assumed. (laughs) And I just, I I immediately attributed that to Laura's sort of uh, not cunning, but um, calculation. It's canny. It's a canny survival tactic. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, if I was a dead girl, would I think ahead? <laughs> Stealing an ice cream truck is so smart. There. <laughs> uh, so that was a cute little scene. I mean, like everything that Laura, everything that Emily Browning and Pablo Schreiber do together is great. We've talked about this before, and this episode just further proves it. So them robbing this ice cream truck vendor <laughs> is just a really delightful moment. Um, and there's a great bit of narration. Then we cut back to Essie's story. There's a great bit of narration. Uh, that goes, malice draped in pretty can get away with murder. I mean, it's just really good. <laughs> All of the narration's really good. Um, we get this uh, great shoplifting montage. I have to say, I'm not a fan of Essie's style. I think she's a little too showy, but, um, you know. Yeah, I don't really believe that. Uh, I think Emily Browning could have used a couple of, uh, you know, her dialect coach might have been better, but uh, her sleight of hand coach was slagging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, she could have used some of Mads. Somebody would have noticed. Um, the narration also says that she improved her lot, all thanks to no man, because you know she doesn't trust those motherfuckers. And um, but but she is so busy. Like, what does she do? Does she then sell her trinkets? Like, she's stealing a lot of like some of them. She definitely wears and like lace. But I'm like, are you also stealing lots of food? Like, I don't know. Um, that was weird to me too. She was very fixated on like all of the lace stands yeah. and I was kind of like, are you going to steal any jewelry? Like, what are you, what are you gonna, I mean, she stole quite a lot of silver from the captain, but it just didn't seem like he was that rich. Right. So Essie gets sort of caught up in her like lace stealing and rando boning and neglects the fairy. So the fairy neglect her. She lands back in jail. She's at Newgate Prison. She's likely to swing. Uh, we find out that Mad Sweeney's in the next cell over. He tells the story about some flange. Flange is Irish slang for the Lady Garden. So, but like my question to you Irish listeners who are so helpful with Ginger Minge is, um. Does he like, but I couldn't find in my light Googling, I couldn't find any example of this being like also used the way the C word is used by mm-hmm. um, the Irish and the British, you know? So, like, is he saying, like, anyway, I've. I, 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 okay, so I had this conversation. I, I mentioned previously my Irish friend on another podcast, and um, I asked her point blank about this the other day. I was like, hey, so, you know, like, I'm just, I, I would like some confirmation here that um, this this word in America, which we find very unacceptable, is not unacceptable at all in Ireland and is also very frequently, possibly even predominantly used by men to other men. And she was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And her brothers were both there, both all of them raised in Ireland. And they were like, yep, yeah. This is a perfectly acceptable, you know, sort of casual term to refer to another. I mean, it's not like, you know, polite conversation, but at the same time, it's yeah. sort of, you know, you just, yeah, I eat concha. You know, it's like not, 
it's not anything like the way and it's not actually despite the origin not really associated with its origin when it's said so i think i mean my interpretation not being irish at all that's not true but a long time ago um is that he's just this is a casual and disrespectful way of referring to a lady. Right, but I'm just I'm just very curious about the like very precise etymology because like <laughs> if like him using the c word, I wouldn't bat an eyelash because like I think it was actually of all people Guy Ritchie movies that taught me that the c word is just tossed around in that <laughs> way. So like that's where I learned that from. But um but like you know, so they would say that, but they wouldn't like say vagina. You know, like I was like, is this an interchangeable slang word that could mean the same thing as a c word does, or is this a case of someone trying to like Irish up the script and not quite <laughs> understanding that like you don't use that word this way? So if you're yeah, Irish and you're listening, and we haven't driven you off with this line of thinking, please let us know how and when to use flange correctly. Because everything that I Googled, it was very anatomical and not like slang um, for, you know, a a worthless person or whatever. So anyway, as Essie's talking to Matsuini, she leaves some bread on her windowsill. And then uh, she says in the Americas, anyone can be anything they insist on. And she tells Matsuini that he would do well in America he could deliver gold to the king, and he said, there's no king of America, and she says, everyone needs a king, um, which I think is sort of a, I think actually they've talked about king of he America said, in, the, in, the, in, Mads, in Wednesday uh-huh. terms, right? No, oh. I, he said that, I don't think it was Wednesday terms, He when he was you know, liberally sprinkling conversation with that objectionable phrase. He <laughs> and yelling at her in the yeah, hotel room. The hotel room he, yeah. he says to her, that's not a coin for just anybody. Yeah. That's a coin for the king of America. Oh. Um, that's a coin for royalty. And it, it uh, that's why this line, th- this had a sort of callback sentimentality to it for me because you know, these coming to America stories are the stories of gods being transported from the place where they originated, the place where they were worshipped, their own home. Some, And you get the sense, perhaps unwillingly, w- without, without their say-so, yeah. being taken to this place where they find themselves struggling. And... This was sort of a sweet scene to me because this is the only time I in, in the show that we see someone in the old world sort of selling their their deity, if you will, on America. And, you know, it, it's almost like he kind of threw Essie fantasizing about and, and I loved what she said. Now I just think I'd be content to be content. You know, I, I, I fucked if I know what happiness is. I thought I knew when I was a little girl. Now I just be content to be content. And he, they're having this lovely, sweet conversation with each other in a prison, swearing quite a lot. But um, (laughs) there was a closeness between them, and you know, through a wall. And when she said that, it was, it was like he had a moment where. It didn't seem so bad to to go with her to travel with the the lost, the hopeless, the condemned to this brand new place and make a new start. And then, and then later on in the episode, 
there there's another line that calls back to that conversation like almost almost as though you sold me on this and it turns out it wasn't true for me. <laughs> yeah. It was true for you and now I'm stuck. Yeah. But but it wasn't recriminating either. I Maybe what I really am responding to so much in this episode, is, as I said before, is there's a relationship without a relationship, but there is a, a commonality. There's a there's a sort of a communion between these two characters and these, yeah, very um, these two creatures who need each other very much in their own different ways. One needs belief, and the other needs to believe. Yeah, yeah, sweet. <laughs> That was really sweet. I really love that scene between them um, on either side of the prison wall. Um, and then perhaps, you know, Maud Sweeney, in, in return for the moldy bread she leaves him on the windowsill, um, makes so the warden comes, pays her a visit. Which is, it's, it's, it feels like exactly the kind of gift the fairy will give you. I'll well, get you out of... Mold, that's what moldy bread gets you, okay? Yeah, I guess so. It's exchange rate for moldy bread. Moldy bread means the warden gets to have his way with you. You get pregnant with this baby, but you don't hang. Good good for yeah. you. Uh, then the show uses one of my favorite uh, phrases of all time that never gets used anymore, which is, she pleads her belly, meaning she's pregnant, <laughs> so they can't hang her. She's transported again. She lands on a tobacco plantation in Virginia. She becomes a wet nurse to the baby of um, the plantation owner, John Richardson, whose wife has died. Um, and then we... Okay, yeah, before we move on to the next thing, I want I just want to mm. talk about... Yeah, is there any anything more we want to talk about in terms of Essie's next, journey, next step in her journey? That transportation scene was really hard for me to watch as a mother. Um, that was... You're not watching the new Twin Peaks, are you? No. <laughs> There's a, I'm just going to put that it this sounds way. Like, that sounds like a warning for me. Well, not no, to. I thought of you this week because I was watching the episode this week. Like, no major spoilers for Twin Peaks, guys. Don't worry. But, like, so I'm going to put it in, like, kind of oblique terms and say, like, remember how you told me you can no longer watch the original <laughs> Mad Max anymore? <laughs> It's exactly that. In no. Twin Peaks this week, I was like, I am glad Gil is not here. She would, and it's, oh, it's very upsetting. Anyway. Um, I've had to, I've had to give up. I, this is terrible, you guys. This is just like, I, my, my children who I love very much have completely ruined me for fiction. Like I, I stopped watching Walking Dead around the time when it was like, here's Michonne's backstory. And I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was that was hard for me to watch, but impactful and and it was you know it's it's accurate and it, it was just very dreadfully sad. But by the same token, when she does get to the tobacco plantation in Virginia, there are some parts of the book that were just not included or not explored, and I was very grateful for that because I didn't really want to see it depicted. <laughs> Did she get sexually assaulted on the plantation? What happens? No, what happens is that um, because you know part of being a wet nurse is yeah. you've recently had a baby, so you oh, you she has to give her she has to give her masters her you know and whatever her baby and then, and then her baby grows up sort of weak and sickly and prone to illness because yeah. it's effectively been malnourished throughout its entire infancy. I did and, I did have a memory of that in that scene where she has the two babies in the cribs. Like, I was expecting, like, one to baby. be, like, fat and healthy, one to be sad and rickety. So, you know. Yeah. So I was, I was glad. To, I, 
it's just like, this is so sad. Like this is, this is why I'm ruined for fiction is because I'm looking at this like f- completely fictional depiction and just being like, is the baby okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, good. It's all right. Um, Awful. No, no. It's okay for have, you to be concerned about the children. Um, so we cut back to modern times where uh, Laura is driving with the AC on the blast. Matsui is freezing. He has a great line saying, we're not all hanger steaks, which is just a fantastic line. Uh, we see a bunny, which is our first hint uh, at who might be helping in the resurrection next really week. Really quickly, though. Really quickly. <laughs> Yeah. Doesn't that scene actually open? Like Laura's driving a, you know, with the AC on. Yeah. Doesn't it actually open? Matt Sweeney doesn't even say anything. She just looks over at him and he's shivering and she's like, stop being such a baby. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. She's just so mean to him. I really enjoy it. I know. They're so great. They're, they're, they're Beatrice and Benedict for the undead. Oh, um, <laughs> for the undead. And the supernatural. He just drops some gold out of the side of the truck like he does to like empty his pockets. And she's like, how much gold do you have? And he says, how much is in a hoard? He talks about being a king. He says, then they made me a bird. Then he said, Mother Church came along and turned us all into saints and trolls and fairies. General Mills did the rest. It's great. It's a great line. Um, he Matsu remembers that he was supposed to go to war. That he saw a vision of his own death in the fire, so he didn't fight. And he says, I owe a battle. And Laura says, since you owe a battle, you've become basically become Wednesday's errand boy. And he says, I done worse than that. As one solitary, lovely tear rolls down his face <laughs> as he looks out the window. We see another bunny, then a car crash. Laura goes splat. Again, stitches come undone. The coin flies out. Um, so what did you think of this? mad sweeney backstory that we got uh you know i i've I've got my um sort of confused irish mythology um theories about it Mm -hmm. um i did not know what he was talking about when he said they made me a bird i and i didn't look it up because i felt like that was cheating (laughs) Uh (laughs) but um i the whole the whole bit about Mother Church came along and turned us all into saints and trolls and fairies. Um, that is very very true. It's a really interesting um, sort of handy coinky dink for uh, Mother Church because it just so happened that there were a lot there was a, a lot of symbols in Celtic mythology that um, have they look like crosses <laughs> like the the shamrocks and um, the Celtic crosses predate Christianity in Ireland. And so it was actually a very easy assimilation to make uh, for, you know, the the Romans coming into Ireland and, well, (laughs) enslaving everyone and then sending them back to France. I'm telling the story of St. Patrick right now. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry, it was the other way around. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Patrick was actually Roman and he was, he was kidnapped by uh, the Irish and and uh, then eventually released and came back to Ireland, but it it just wasn't. And and Patrick, it, the the historical figure of Patrick is credited with going systematically through Ireland and building churches everywhere. And um, it was a pretty smooth assimilation, as assimilations go, because there were just sort of a lot of things that um, 
Christianity was like, oh, we'll give you that. You got to give up that, you know, and, and that's been kind of the history of Christianity as we know it now is, you know, well, you know, I guess, I guess he was, he was technically born in April, but tell you what, you love your tree thing. So (laughs) we'll give you your trees. We'll move the date, but forget your old thing. It's about this guy now. And just the trees go inside now. So in, I, I really responded to that sentence because that is a perfect example of how I think these gods are being portrayed coming over to America and finding that their traditions or their, their worship, the way that they are valued or were valued in the old world. Well, there's a new way of valuing and you're going to either adapt to it or you're going to just, you know, disappear, uh, presumably and be forgotten like the, uh, the mastodon skull in the, in the early episode, uh, the early part of episode five. Yeah. Our favorite, anyway, our favorite coming to America moment. Our, our most favorite <laughs> <laughs> attempt. Um, there's a, sorry, go ahead. No, it's, it's just, yeah, anyway, all, all those, all those, um, saints and trolls and fairies. Yeah. I, I was actually, I was in my friend's house and I was looking at, um, she has a St. Bridget's cross, above her her kitchen sink and um it's not a normal it's not a regular cross like you see jesus being crucified on and so i was asking her about it i was like is that you know originally uh, is that a pre-christian symbol that just got appropriated and we looked it up and yes it is it absolutely is there are just so many of those symbols that happen to fit sort of neatly into the christian mythology um it was it but but because of that it was also very easy for the fairies, uh, the trolls, the legends to stick around in Irish culture, despite the fact that the the, the culture got highly Christianized. Um, right. So it's not, it's not like around because they they had the same imagery. Right. It's not like Christianity coming to some place and just eradicating, mm-hmm. like pulling down the idols of like the religion that predated it. It's like, let me assimilate your, <laughs> we can work with your you. iconography into mine. <laughs> so then, yeah, these these other creatures become saints or they become. And uh, as a result, they get, yeah. I, I think the message that Matt Sweeney was what he was saying was that basically I I got dumbed down. I, I used to be a king. And and then I got made into something else. Yeah, Yeah, and yeah, now I sell cereal. There's this great... um, I don't consider this cheating, having looked this up, because I've read this website many, many, many times. Um, (laughs) But it's a great companion piece to either reading um, American Gods or watching the show. Um, And it's something that even Neil Gaiman has, like, put his stamp of approval on. The post is called, if you just Google only the gods are real, I think you get it. But it's Mm -hmm. basically a crowdsourced um, exploration of every single god that shows up in American Gods. Um, And the the URL is a little ungainly, but it's www.frowl.org slash gods slash gods dot html. And it's in alphabetical order has every single, I mean, there's spoilers in there. So I would suggest you do like a page search if you want to like go directly to the God that you want to read about. Um, But Mad Sweeney's in here and um, 
The entry reads, uh, Mad Sweeney was a 12th century poet named after a 7th century Irish king. The name Mad Sweeney is like very likely taken from the Irish mythological story. Um, this is where I butcher Gaelic. Um, Bile Sweeney or the Frenzy of Sweeney. And Sweeney is spelled like S-U-I-B-H-N-E. Um, mm. In it, Sweeney, the son of King of Dalriada, is driven mad by a curse and only regains his sanity after running the entire length of Ireland from north to south. If you look up uh, the frenzy of Sweeney to get more specifics. There is a part where he's turned into a bird and uh, also a part, uh, you know, about battle and fearing and seeing his own death and stuff like that. So all that comes from this mm. Irish mythological story, the madness of Sweeney or Sweeney's frenzy, um, which you guys are all welcome to read if you want to, but you know, that's <laughs> kind of fun that they just like sprinkle. I, you know, I don't think they intend to ever explain the bird thing, but it's one of those things that they just put in there. And if you want to like yeah. Google mad Sweeney and bird, like you can do some extracurricular reading. <laughs> so, <laughs> birds. um, all right. So we are back with Essie on the plantation. She's talking about Samhain, which I used to pronounce Sam Hain for a really long time before someone actually said it to me. Um, which is sort of a Gaelic Halloween. Um, she once, Essie once again seduces the master of the house, but this time a bit more cannily. She does not give up. <laughs> she's she's figured it out. Until she gets, he puts a ring on it. Uh, this <laughs> man who seems like a very lovely man, like really does. There's no evidence to the yeah. contrary. He, he, he marries her. Um, they see like, it's just, it's not, like, it's a con. Like, Essie has conned him for security that you mentioned before, but it's not like an, uh, it's not like a bad natured con because, like, there's no evidence that she's not nice to him for the decade a, that they're married and yeah. he's very nice to her. And so it's just it's like, a partnership yeah, that he did not realize was planned out for him. Right. <laughs> but he, she gets the plantation when he dies. I feel like I remember <clears> there in the, did you reread the Essie? thing this week mm-hmm. I um i did is there like some question of whether or not she gets the farm the plantation no i okay. i don't i don't remember there being any question if if there was okay. it was like the briefest it was pretty much like she became the lady of the place she ran it yeah. and she became really well known in the area for being a, a very canny businesswoman and the reason why everything works out for Essie this time is she never forgets the fairy folk. In fact, she leaves whole loaves out um, for the fairies come harvest time. <laughs> then we jump forward in time. Essie's now played by Fionnola Flanagan again, who is telling the story of the Alf Lukrach, <laughs> which in Celtic mythology <clears throat> is a joint eater, a type of fairy who sits invisibly and consumes half of their victims' food. Uh, it's an evil, greedy fairy from Irish mythology. When a person falls asleep by the side of a spring or stream, the Alflucha appears in the form of a newt, crawls into the person's mouth, feeding off the food that they had eaten. In Robert Kirk's secret commonwealth of fairies, this creature feeds not on the food itself, but on the pith or quintessence of food. So, so another... either, either yeah. an insatiable greed fairy or a tapeworm. <laughs> But I, I learned I learned two new Irish mythological creatures, or three if we want to get Mad Sweeney as being a bird, um, this episode. And then we flash once again to Mad Sweeney coming for Essie, but that's we're still not there yet. We go back to Mad Sweeney and Laura in their car crash. Laura is still splattered. It's very gross. Her organs are just like on the concrete. 
they like flopped out, yeah. which is perfectly accurate, I'm sure. So but they're like lying in sort of viscous it's pools. Like, here's a spleen. <laughs> here's something else. Um, There's a thing. Yeah. He grabs his coin. And then he flashes back to the night that he caused her car crash twist, which is not something that's ever (laughs) laid out in the book. I don't believe that they explain that. It's very plausible. Yeah, but they don't like indicate it in the book at all. Um, and, and, And when he caused the car crash, she told the Ravens, like, tell him it's done, like, very bitterly. So it's Mm. like, you know. He's under some kind of duress. The guilt is weighing on him for having killed Laura. Uh, he curses this guy in Gaelic. And this, dear listener, is something I did not look up as opposed to all the other things. So if you speak Gaelic and listen to this podcast uh, and want to translate um, Mad Sweeney's curse to this guy, please, please go forth and do so. Um, he picks up her disgusting organs. <laughs> he doesn't even like, wrinkle his nose. I'm sure he's seen plenty worse. Uh, stuffs them back in her. Uh, replaces the coin. It sinks back in. She wakes up. She punches him. She puts the jacket over her chest cavity to, you know, preserve her modesty. Don't look. As her, like, skin flaps are just sort of hanging, <gasps> hanging there. She goes. She lifts the truck up effortlessly with her super strength. And he gets back in the truck. She's like, get in the truck, basically. He gets back in the truck. Immediately so mean to him again. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they take off. Uh, I did love that he he made no attempt to defend himself at all. In fact, he smiles a little bit like, <clears throat> this is a relationship we have. Yep. <laughs> like, I I don't take my coin away from her because I I apparently can't. But also she yells at me. I think, he, yeah. I think he could have taken his at that point in that moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. At that point, he could have. But yeah, the little smile was just kind of funny. It was like, well, I don't know. That was that was the the yeah. whole that was a very unspoken thing kind of moment. She <laughs> she, uh, she lives. I love her. To bitch me out another day. Um, <laughs> and then we finally get the scene that has been hinted at twice, which is Mad Sweeney coming for Essie as uh, the older Essie. McGowan as she uh, passes away gently um, one night on the plantation. And um, and then Ibis wraps up the tale. Uh, and, you know, yeah, they have that conversation that you talked about where he's like, you know, here in this land where there's no room for faith or magic or anything like that. No one leaves bread out for the fairies. Well, a few people do. Um, yeah, I... That I just did. I did find that scene so charming because, as I said, he did not recriminate with her. He didn't. He was not coming to all appearances to blame her or punish her or revenge himself on her. It was similar to the kindness that um, Jack Jackal Jackal yeah. uh, Anubis, Anubis bestowed in a in a previous episode, which was. You always believed in me. You always took care of me. You always did it in a strange place where I needed, I needed you more than perhaps I would have needed you in another place. And I have not forgotten that. And, and I look with special favor on you. And there was just, there was something very sweet about that because not only, not only did these, these gods need these people. We focus very much in the show and in the book on how much the gods need people to, to supply them with worship. But also those people harbored this fondness for, and this homesickness for something that came from 
their place and there they needed each other. And I got that very much from this episode um, with this relationship between Essie and Mad Sweeney. I, yeah, bad wigs aside. (laughs) (laughs) I really love this episode. I think a lot of people are feeling a little bit weird about, or at least some people are feeling a little bit weird about Emily Browning being cast in this role as well. Cause it's like, are they trying to say that, you know, Laura, some long lost descendant of Essie or something like that. And I don't, I don't even think that needs to be the indication at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does. I certainly add, hope they don't go that route no. later. But it, like, it shouldn't be literal. It should just be no. like. No. Um, it's all stories kind of getting smashed up together. Yeah. And, and just sort of like, you know, Essie is not like Laura. Essie is not a saint, you know. And so like her, her Trixie convict girl um, <laughs> belief in Mad Sweeney and his like you know care for her um, as you say a relationship without being a relationship like you know I'm sure that there are people watching the show who are like forget Shadow like <laughs> I ship it have sex with that leprechaun um, <laughs> once you're less dead but um, but <laughs> yeah once your skin flaps have been put to, back together but um, but I like Ibis and Jackal, it's just sort of um, I I I don't even care about defining it, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's just quite lovely. So, um, okay, is there anything else we want to talk about in terms of this episode? Hmm. I mean, we can use terrible Irish accents to do so. Here's what I'll say, <laughs> and my terrible Irish accent starts now. Yeah. I really do hope they learn the lesson of this episode and the Laura episode and don't make um, like be brave and make Laura more of a focus in season two, even more of a focus than she already is. And maybe let go of Shadow a little. It's all right. Like, it's okay. You can let go of him, even though he's he's the protagonist of the story. Um, It's just I'm worried a little bit about uh, some of the things that are coming up in the book that are just very shadow all the time. And I'm like, I don't want to go to there. So I'm worried. Um, what do you think in your terrible Irish accent? Sure, and I was real relieved <laughs> not to have to deal with Shadow's constant, constant surprise over everything that he ever saw that came from a world that wasn't made of you know, McDonald's and sports teams and everything else that Americans hold dear. Sparks. Just, (laughs) you know, sure, and I'm sure (laughs) I know Shadow loved going to the gym and being married to Laura and living in her grand's house, but I think probably Shadow Oh, fuck it. Diddly I, I love <laughs> Laura. I love her as a character. If I was a dead girl, I'd want a beer. And <clears throat> I'm delighted to see that they're giving her so much attention because I want Laura really to be the main character. And I want, I want to, I want to, I, okay. I was also surprised to see Salim go. Haven't said that I was surprised to see Salim stay <laughs> in a previous episode. Now I'm surprised to see him go. I don't know when Salim's coming or going. <laughs> I don't 
think Salim knows when he's coming or going. Um, presumably, we'll see him at House Under Rock next season. Um, I fear that me showing you the Ron Howard film Far and Away <laughs> has had a detrimental effect on both of our already terrible lawyers. Oh, no. They were always bad. Yeah. But now maybe bad. a little worse. Now a little tongue cruisier than they were before. Um, scrub. If you I, plunge. You, you plunge and you scrub until all your plunging and scrubbing is done. If I told you listeners <laughs> that one time Gail and I convinced a very drunk group of people that we were actually Irish, you would not mm. believe us. But it did happen. They were that drunk. They were that drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Alright, so having tortured, if you're still listening, having tortured you with that, having maybe offended any actual Irish listeners, um, we hope you'll forgive us, and uh, you know, I'm curious to hear what what... Saying, commercial me away to me. (laughs) (laughs) For no reason at all. I'm just throwing that out there, so you'll you'll hate us a little more. But it was flies. Remember, it was like all the flies was, that got trapped in your car. When we were trying, to, trying to get them. Like, Come here to me, flies. Wait, Wait to me, flies. flies. <laughs> which was a babe joke, which was funny. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, we're we're those people, and um, thank you for listening to us talk about this show, which is ups and is ups and downs and ups and downs. And this one was, uh, I think, a particularly fine example of what the show can be. And um, I actually quite enjoyed the finale, which you will all see next week. So I'm excited to talk to everyone about that. But please do continue to give us feedback at stormspoilers at gmail.com. We've got so many good emails. We couldn't read all of them on air. But thank you so much for sending them. We love all of them. We love it when you tweet at us on the Twitter. Gail, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at, at Clockwork Rose. Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can hear me talking about Game of Thrones Season 4 this week on Star Wars Spoilers, which, alas, means you'll have to hear my terrible Dornish accent, which is Ooh. actually it's it's a good deal better than my Irish accent. And um, That's because it's made up. It's because it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> there are no linguists currently critiquing Dornish accents. Um, linguists they, to follow they probably should um <laughs> and until next week until our final chapter next week only the gods are real <laughs> <laughs>